You will join me in the letter of Jude. The letter of Jude. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, it is on page 1027. It is the second to last book of the Bible, just before Revelation. It may be easy to miss. It's probably only one page or so in your Bible. The letter of Jude. The title of our sermon this morning is Contend for the Faith, and our text will be Jude verses 1 through 4. Our key words for our worshipers in training are contend, faith, and false. Now, according to church tradition, the apostle named Jude was martyred. He was killed because of his faith. In A.D. 74, near Mount Erat in Armenia, he was crucified on a cross and pierced by arrows. In fact, did you know that according to church tradition and historical records, as far as we can tell, all of the apostles, except for the apostle John, died as martyrs. John, of course, was banished to the island of Patmos, but all the rest died as martyrs. Now, interestingly, as we think about Jude, in John's gospel, we read in John chapter 7 and verse 5, for not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Now, John was referencing Jesus' biological brothers born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus, his, youngest, or his two younger half-brothers. So at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Joseph and Mary's sons, Jude being one of them, did not believe that Jesus was divine. Eventually, however, Jude came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he followed him and was chosen as one of Jesus' apostles. In In the Bible, we find that Jude also went by the names Thaddeus, maybe more of who you're familiar with as you think of all of the apostles, and Barsabbas, we read in Acts 15, was another one of his names. Now, after Jesus ascended into heaven, Jude traveled around preaching the gospel, first in Judea, then he went on to Galilee, Samaria, Idumiah, and then the areas of Arabia and Syria and Mesopotamia. Eventually, he ended up in the city of Edessa, where he was eventually martyred. <clears throat> I've always been interested in the lives of Christian martyrs. It seems, in many ways, Uh, that the idea of martyrdom is very foreign to us in our Western context, and specifically here in America. We are incredibly blessed as a people. In many ways, we, we hardly acknowledge or even pay attention to that blessing. We don't have a concept, really. We don't have any kind of real concept of being in danger because we are meeting together right now as Christians, or because we all have multiple Bibles in our home or because we have conversations whenever we would like with other people about Jesus, whether they want to or not, or because we don't bow down to a picture of an emperor or a king or have statues of them in our homes, it's very unlikely that any of us here remaining in America throughout our lifespan will see a time where we have the kinds of dangers that others face because of their Christian faith. It's very unlikely. There will be likely an erosion of Christian liberty. Things may get squeezed. Things may be tough for the church for a time. But overall, facing death as a result of our faith in Christ in America is probably not very likely for most of us. 
But for some Christians, it's a daily reality. It's a daily challenge to know that because of what they believe, it is very likely that they could be imprisoned, they could be tortured, they could be executed. It's happened all throughout the history of the church. There are, as we speak, Christian brothers and sisters locked up in different regions all across the world right now, and many of them are soon to be killed. Perhaps even some, while we meet here together this morning, will be killed. How about you? How sure are you of your convictions? How robust is your faith in Christ that when an individual or a group or an institution or a government tells you to choose between your life and your profession of trust in Jesus Christ, that you would choose Jesus Christ? How sure are you of those convictions? It's a, it's a question that had to be asked in the early church often, and as I mentioned, throughout the world today, it's one that's pretty well lost on us, and we should be thankful for that. God has protected and preserved us, and And as we begin this new series through this short book of Jude, it's a question that we're confronted with right out of the gate. On a more practical note for us, we have to consider, what does the Bible say not just about faith in general, but Jude is going to address the issue of truth, the truth of the gospel that was given to the church, once for all delivered to us. Are you willing and are you equipped to contend for the faith? Would you die for the faith? It's a serious question that all of us need to be ready to answer. So let's read together the letter of Jude. We will read this morning verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, from the very beginning, I want you to see the humility of Jude as the letter begins. Notice he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude and James were Jesus' brothers by birth, and yet he identifies with James because he doesn't want to put himself on the same level as the Lord. And, and that would have been known to the church. They would have understood. They know who James was. He was leading the church in Jerusalem. They would have understood the family lineage. And so Jude is making a point from the very beginning, namely that he's not trying to put himself over and above anyone else by being greater, by being more worthy, by being more righteous, but making very clear, yes, James and I are brothers in Jesus, but we are, look at the word he uses, he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. So in the first few words of the, of the letter, we see this radical transformation of a man who at first didn't believe at all that Jesus was even the Messiah. And now he calls himself a servant. 
And eventually he dies in the same manner as Jesus with the addition of being pierced by arrows. This is Jude who's writing this letter. And that's the only introduction to Jude that we have. That's all the information that he gives us about himself. He's exemplifying what it means to truly be a servant of Christ. More of Christ, less of himself. Uh, He wants us to remember who Christ is. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. And so that's exactly what we will do. We will not spend our time thinking about Jude the man. We will spend our time thinking about who Jude the man points to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at our text this morning, we're going to look at three points. The first is an encouragement that will give us a foundation upon which we will look at the other two points, which will be imperatives or commands. So an encouragement and two imperatives. First point, verses 1 and 2. Christian, you are called, beloved, and kept. Jude begins by giving us affirmations as those who are believers in Jesus Christ, by virtue of our being united to Christ. It's, it's common in letters in most cultures, ours being the same, is that in the beginning of the letter you acknowledge who it's being written to if possible. And you'll notice Jude's letter is not a generic to whom it may concern letter. He's, he is quite specific. This is Jude laying out for us who, is, uh, who he's writing to and who needs to pay attention. Who is he describing here? Now, hopefully, after we've spent several weeks on a series uh, that we dealt with assurance, you'll be able to conclude who Jude is writing to. And I hope you see yourself in this. He says, to those who are called beloved in God, and kept for us in Jesus Christ. You know that he's writing then a letter to Christians. It's likely that he was writing to a specific local church. He doesn't mention who that is. And so we understand, obviously, the letters in the Bible. We know he's writing to Christians in general in some sense. So it is safe for us to say, if you are a Christian, this letter is for you. These imperatives, these commands, they apply to your life. The direction that he goes, the wisdom that he provides applies to your life. So Jude states three things specifically about Christians here. He says we are called... We are beloved, and we are kept. So briefly, those three things. First, we are called. Linguistically, there's no difference between saying that we are called and saying that we are chosen. This is a reference to what we call theologically the doctrine of election. And we've dealt with that, particularly as we work through Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not going to spend a lot of time dealing with that here, but I simply want to point out that Jude is using this language. In fact, every instance in the New Testament when that same word is used, it is synonymous with election, which is God's choosing a people to call His own from eternity past. The only time we see called and chosen not used synonymously in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 14, which actually only strengthens the doctrine of election. That text says many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus is highlighting the fact that many will hear the gospel and will be called to faith and repentance, but few of those are chosen as sons and daughters of God for adoption. So what Jude is saying is that we are those who are called, and by that we have been 
Theologically, we say efficaciously called. In other words, the call is settled. God called us, and that call was effective in our life. God determined before the world began who from among all of the created people he would choose and adopt as his sons and daughters. And the reason he brings this up is because in this letter, he's going to be dealing with issues like false teaching and apostasy. He's dealing with people who are being led astray and leaving the faith altogether, and they're enemies of the church even though they have been in the church. And so when we read that, it's very easy for us to go and say, well, what about me? What does that say about me? But Jude wants to remind us up front that those who are in Christ are in Christ. We are God's chosen people. He's not going to get rid of us. He further strengthens this reality, secondly, when he says that we are beloved. Quite simply, when a father adopts a child, what does he give that child? He gives him a lot of things, but most importantly, he gives him love. We can rest safely in our calling as as God's people because we are loved. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is hard to grasp sometimes because I know When I'm really honest with myself, I know how unlovable I am. I know how difficult of a person I am, and I know how hard it has to be to love me. And it makes all of you who really do love me all the more amazing, sanctified, godly people. So you're welcome for giving you that opportunity. But this isn't you or me. This is God. And so this should shock us when we pause to think about it. We are loved by God. Not only are we loved, brothers and sisters, we have the amazing truth of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you are in Christ, there is no greater thing to look at to know that you are loved than the fact that you were a hater and you were a blasphemer of God, but Christ lived for you, Christ died for you, Christ took upon himself the penalty that had to be paid for your sin. And one of the wonderful things about how Jude writes to tell us this about the love that God has for us is a love that was manifest in the past and it continues into the future. It is an eternal, never-ending love. You and I, in Christ, were loved in the eternal heart of God in timeless past when He elected us and, we are de- in, and He has determined that He will set His love on us and keep us in His love forever and ever. And that love was readily and openly displayed when Christ died for us as a substitute for our sins on the cross, and that love never ends. So we are called, we are beloved. Thirdly, we are kept. If you are a child of God, you are forever a child of God because you have been called, because you are loved, and by virtue of the death of Jesus and God's claim on your life as His own, you are kept and you will never fall away. Jesus reminds us of that himself in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He goes on in verse 40 and says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
One more, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And so Jesus and the apostles affirm, and specifically here, Jude is affirming that when Jesus says that, that once you are in the Father's hand, you are in the Son's hand, nobody can take you out, you are kept, and you are kept by Jesus. And that's really, really good to know for a lot of reasons. But in this instance, in this book of Jude, it's good to know because we're reminded that in the truth of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for us, if Christ truly is our Savior and Lord, we will not apostatize. We will not walk away. We will not fall away from the faith. And I know I need to hear that because if it were not for the grace of God in Jesus Christ keeping me, I know how fickle and how weak my heart is and that I would walk away because I can be enamored by the world and the flesh and the temptations of the devil. So when I read something in the Bible that says, hey, there's going to be false teachers and there are going to be a people who are apostate, I say, "Uh uh-oh, I hope that's not me. And guys like Jude know that because that was in their hearts as well. And they say, but if you're in Christ, there's nothing to worry about. If you're in Christ, you're called and you're loved and you're kept and you will not fall away. Brothers and sisters, that is very good news to build on. And that's why he begins this letter in that way. So when we get to those difficult passages, when he tells us that's going to happen, we can be reminded if you're in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, then that's not you. That's not you. Now, the second thing we see this morning is an imperative. And I believe this verse is the central verse to Jude's entire letter. This is his main point in verse 3. Christian, contend for the faith. Read again verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now there's a bit of a tricky issue here with verse 3 up front because it may seem like what Jude is saying is, I really wanted to write to you about our common salvation. However, instead of doing that, I'm going to write to you about contending for the faith. But that's not really how he's saying that. I understand how you might draw that conclusion. But to understand it that way is to get it wrong. Jude isn't putting these two things up against one another and saying, over here is our common salvation and over here is contending for the faith. I wanted to write to you about this, but instead I'm going to have to write to you about this over here. No, that really those two things are inseparably tied to one another and that's not particularly clear in the English translation. The King James Version may be closest. It says, beloved When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye shall earnestly contend for the faith. In other words, when Jude sat down to write about our common salvation, 
he found it necessary that the main focus in doing so, because of the circumstances before them, is to exhort them to contend for the faith. So we can summarize this a bit differently. We get a sense of what what he's saying here. Brothers and sisters, we have a common salvation which is from our faith in Christ that we must contend for. That's what he's saying in verse 3. And here's the point. Jude is saying we must contend for the faith because salvation is at stake. If we get the truth wrong we get the gospel wrong. And if we get the gospel wrong, we are preaching another Christ and no other Christ will save. There is only one faith. And he calls that the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that faith is worth contending for. It's worth fighting for. It is worth dying for. It is worth becoming a martyr for. Just last week, two weeks ago, you may have seen in our own United States Congress, a question was asked of a man who is up for nomination for a position, and he was asked if he believed a statement that he wrote concerning the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and saying very candidly and clearly that those who are Muslims have no hope, they are condemned because they do not have faith in Jesus Christ. And a senator asked him if he truly believes that, and if so, he thinks that that is an abomination. And this man said clearly that I believe, essentially, in the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. I'm a Christian. Of course I believe that. Of course I believe you must have faith in Jesus Christ, that there is no other way to heaven, or else I wouldn't call myself a Christian. That's what a Christian is. And by the way, a Muslim thinks the same thing about us. And so he understood something of the fact that, look, my job may be on the line politically, Culturally, publicly, I may be ridiculed, I may be uh, maligned, I may not get this job, but you know what? My faith in Christ is worth proclaiming, it is worth living for, it is worth fighting for, it is worth dying for. And the Bible talks about this body of truth. This body of truth, this, this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the Bible uses words like deposit, pattern and tradition to communicate that this body of truth has been passed down from generation to generation and it is being given by spiritual, given to our spiritual heirs. A Puritan pastor named William uh, Jenney wrote that it's like a ring, a jewel, which belonged to our fathers or predecessors of old. How precious it is. Since it is a precious depositum or treasure for children and successors, we should endeavor that the generation that is yet to come may also serve the same God and enjoy the same Christ and gospel. Do you know how many generations it takes to lose the gospel in a church? It takes one. It takes one generation of people failing to pass on the faith, teaching the truth, pointing the next generation to the gospel, that the gospel is dead and gone and the church is no longer a Christian church but becomes a synagogue of Satan. 
Now, if you're paying attention, you will find that there are many professing Christians who want to start a lot of battles and want to stir up a lot of conflict about a lot of issues, and they're going to tell you that they're contending for the faith, and sometimes they might be. However, oftentimes what you'll see is that people are actually contending not for the faith, but for some niche hobby horse issue that isn't a matter on which our common salvation is built upon. And while it may be something that is interesting, maybe it is a biblical issue that has an interesting place worth discussion, but if it isn't ultimately an issue that is something of importance related to our salvation, it may not be worth something uh, to die over. There are things we contend for that we shouldn't die for. There are things that we contend for that we should die for. Let me give you an example. I surprise, I'm a Baptist. I believe that a person should be a Christian, and a person should profess faith and trust in Jesus Christ and show evidence of true regeneration in their life before they are baptized in water by full immersion. The vast majority of my spiritual, theological, pastoral heroes of the faith and many of my closest personal friends are Presbyterians who sprinkle water on the heads of infants after they are born, and they call that baptism. We disagree. Now, one of us is wrong, or both of us are wrong, but both of us cannot be right. It's not possible when it comes to baptism. However, it is important, it is a means of grace, it is, it is uh, an ordinance of the church, but it's not an issue related to our common salvation in terms of being a work of salvation. So baptism, although many have died as a result of their faith and their belief in it, And so we must contend for it. We must argue for it. It's a disagreement. We must contend for our positions. But we must understand that it is an in-house disagreement that needs to be discussed and worked out amongst people who are affirming one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You are not not saved because you have a difference on the issue of baptism. Now, as a Christian... I believe that a person is saved by the gift of the grace of God alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works of the law whatsoever. There is nothing I can do or will do or ever will do to earn my place in heaven and that will please God to such an extent that I am made acceptable and worthy of my salvation in His sight. The only thing I provide in terms of my salvation is the sin that makes Christ's death necessary if I'm to be declared righteous at all. If anyone, anywhere, at any time says, yes, it is true that we are saved by grace through faith, but we must also be baptized, we must also give money to the church, we must also be a member of the church in order to be saved, we ought to say with the Apostle Paul, let them be accursed. And if it's a matter of confessing that falsehood and living and, and standing on, or standing on justification by faith alone and dying, we die. Why? Because that has everything to do with the issue of salvation. This is the heart of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is the faith we are contending for. 
I hope you see the difference. Now, you might say, but didn't we just talk about how when we are saved, we are kept? Why would we need to contend if the battle is already won? It is already won. But listen, just because our commander-in-chief tells the troops that they will be victorious in the end, he doesn't send them into the battle without their weapons and tactics of warfare. No, in fact, the, the, the promise of victory doesn't call, cause us to pull back from the battle. The promise of victory should embolden us to fight harder and further and more faithfully because we know the outcome. When God promises that His church will be kept from defeat, His purpose is not that we lay down our swords and go to lunch, but that we pick up the sword of the Spirit and look, and look confidently to God for our strength to fight and to win because we know we will be victorious in the end. Now, this contending, this contending is for all Christians. Jude doesn't specify anyone here in his letter. However, we know that the Bible gives this as a primary task to the elders of the church. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 says, An elder must be a man that must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Listen, if you have an elder, and here you don't, I assure you, who is unwilling to stand faithfully and heroically for the faith, he is not a man qualified to be an elder. He is a coward, and he cannot be trusted with the word of God. That is an uncomfortable thing at times. It's not generally ever a fun thing, but it's not something that should be taken lightly. There are times when it is absolutely necessary for the church, and most especially her leaders, to take stands on the truth that will oftentimes cause ridicule and mockery from the world and even from other professing Christians. Listen, there are a lot of things, and I mean a lot of things, that for us to hold to and proclaim today as Christians who simply want to be faithful to the Scriptures and hold to the truth of God's Word no matter what the culture around us is doing, there are a lot of things that we're going to be mocked for. We're going to be slandered and lied about and put down, and maybe one day we might be attacked for it. And here's the deal. I know for myself... There's a difficult line to draw because there are things that I believe very strongly and I can argue for them sometimes too strongly when they aren't matters of our common salvation but are issues that I might have firm opinions about. And so if we stand so firmly on something like that, we're in in the wrong and we're not helpful in bringing people along to understand what the gospel is and what it's worth. However, there are issues that while we need to do so with gentleness and respect, there is no sense in which we can take too firm of a stance because we ought to be willing to die for it. Many of you, we've talked about this through the years, and you've discussed with me many times when you've contended for the faith, you've had uncomfortable, confrontational conversations with family and friends over matter, matters of, of faith that we'll all, we all probably wish we never really had to have in the first place. And sometimes you may have crossed the line. I know I've done that many times. However, there are times when we need to be reminded that some issues are life and death issues, and they need to be fought for. We don't have to be... We shouldn't be jerks, but we should stand on God's word. We should not waver. That is contending for the faith. It is the primary responsibility of the elders of the church. 
And the elders of the church should be equipping the members of the church to understand and to know the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. And when the church has opportunity, they should too be taking a stand for Christ, which can be simple. It can be as simple as not participating in something that would offend God. It could be not affirming the Mormon kid who's standing at your door that their soul is safe when you know they're going to hell if they don't leave their cult and trust in Christ alone. Contending for the faith is when your boss asks you to do something that's immoral or illegal, you remember that your allegiance is not to him or your company, but to Christ, and you refuse to do it no matter what. Contending for Christ is when someone is blaspheming God that you get over the butterflies in your stomach and that lump in your throat and that feeling that you're going to throw up and you say something like, hey, that's my Lord you're talking about. Could you stop? Contending for the faith means that when the culture around us is bending in every direction to get out of the way of social justice warriors so they're not the next victim, the church stands and says, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way but through Him. And the Word of God says that those who live contrary to the Word of God have not been transformed by the gospel and are therefore not going to heaven unless there is true faith and repentance. That's not an easy thing to say. It is not an easy thing to say to tell someone, if you continue in your life as you are, apart from Christ, you will go to hell. Nobody wants to say that to anybody. It's not an easy truth to stand on in the midst of hostility. But it is a matter of life and death. Do I really love the person I'm talking to? Should I not warn them? of what the reality is of what lies before them beyond this life. And you know what? Sometimes other professing Christians are going to tell you that you shouldn't be so dogmatic or, or that you just aren't being nice. Most often, the worst enemies of Christian doctrine are professing Christians who do not hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But while we're called to be gentle and respectful and kind-hearted as Christians, and we must be, doing all that we do in love, being nice isn't actually a fruit of the Spirit. I don't think anyone would have said Jesus was being nice when he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. I don't think anyone would have said that Jesus, uh, that Paul was being nice when he told the Judaizers to emasculate themselves and said they are damned to hell because of their false gospel. There's a significant difference between being an uncompromising, truth-telling, faithful Christian who is gentle, respectful, kind-hearted, and loving versus being a person without a spine that is willing to, cho- uh, to change with the wind because you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. At the end of the day, the truth can be painful at times when we don't want to hear it and submit to it, but the truth doesn't care about your feelings. Again, please hear me. Don't be a jerk. There's no excuse for that, ever. I assure you, if you contend for the truth, you will be considered a jerk no matter what. But you don't have, so you don't have to add to that and you don't have to work for that. But do not let that deter you, Christian. 
contend for the truth. We must. And if you ever have a pastor or an elder who is unwilling to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, get rid of him because he will do far more harm than good to your soul and to the church. There's truth worth contending for. There is truth worth dying for. That is hard for our relativistic culture to understand. Most people you know aren't willing to die for anything. You know why? Because they have nothing to look forward to. The blood of the martyrs is a powerful testimony that the faith once for all delivered to the saints is worth contending for. The apostles, the reformers, they were all willing to die. We have brothers and sisters right now in this world willing to die because they will not renounce the name of Christ. They care enough about the message of salvation that it would be preserved. They care about people. They care about the glory of God. And we need that sense of preciousness about biblical doctrine and about the faith. So, with that being said, brothers and sisters, we must contend for the faith. Why? Well, we see in our final exhortation, very quickly, because we're going to deal with this a lot in the weeks ahead, so we'll just brush on it this morning in verse 4. Christian, be watchful and aware. Look again at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The great theologian Gerhardus Voss once said, All heresy begins with being a partial truth. Do you know the truth well enough to be able to identify when it's being bent and distorted and only a partial truth? I always have to laugh when something is stated strongly about a serious error theologically, and it's identified and called out, and there are professing Christians who will very quickly say, you you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't judge the things people believe like that and say things about their beliefs. And right then and there, I know that they are not paying attention to the Bible, because first, they would also identify what's being addressed as being false and untrue and dangerous as an error, but two, they would see that all throughout the Scriptures, and especially in the New Testament, you have statements like this from the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We see it over and over and over again in the New Testament. The plain New Testament teaching is that the faith will repeatedly be threatened from within. The faith, once for all delivered to the saints, is repeatedly threatened from within the church. Look, our biggest problem is not the immorality and the foolishness of the world. It's there, it always has been there, it will always be there, it's not going away. It's obvious for what it is. We don't have, I don't need to stand up here and and run down a list of the world's greatest sins. You know what they are. They're obvious. The problem is when we accept and embrace and are unwilling to address that which is foolishness in the world and allow it to come into the body. Specifically here, Jude says that these false teachers are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, 
Jesus Christ. In other words, they're probably saying something like this. They're probably saying something like, if we are saved by grace, then it doesn't matter what we do morally. In fact, when a Christian sins, it only serves to magnify the grace of God. So they turn the grace of God against the commandments of Christ and deny the lordship of Jesus and ended up in all kinds of grotesque, immoral, licentious activities that dishonor God. If someone is perverting the gospel and perverting God's grace like that, watch out. Contend for the faith. Point them to the truth. If someone says, I know what the Bible says, but I have a different situation. You know, everyone wants to think they're the exception to the rule when they want to sin. It's been the case for the church for the last 2,000 years, but my instance, my situation is different. God miraculously, in some way, somehow told me that, and so I need to, um, I need to go along with what I think, not what God has said. You know what they are? They're deceived. They're fools. And if that is allowed to continue in the church, they're dangerous. Contend for the faith with them. Brothers and sisters, we must be watchful and aware because the grace of God in the faith that we have that was delivered to us by the saints is that important. And in order to do that, we have to know the truth. We must never rest in knowing more of God's Word and how it works in relationship to the broader scope of the truth of the Bible and how we are to apply it to our daily lives. We can never hear the Gospel enough. We can never remind ourselves of the truth of the Gospel enough. We can never know enough truth. We can never know enough sound doctrine. We can never know enough of what God has revealed to His people. Keep learning, keep digging, keep understanding so that we together collectively can all be watchful and aware and can continue to contend for the faith with the sword of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are called, we are loved, we are kept And so we've got nothing to lose in the battle. Christ will keep you because He loves you. and The Father has made you His own. So we must fight on. We must press on together. The battle is real, and we're in the middle of it day by day. 